Welcome back to the Der Show. Before we get to the subject matter of today, which is the constitutionality of the Biden executive order uh, canceling uh, certain student loans, I want to comment briefly on the life and death of Mikhail Gorbachev, who died today in his early 90s. Um, I got to know him um, and met him on several occasions. Two of them stand out. Uh, I was invited to speak uh, at the Kremlin in 19, must have been 89 or 90, I don't remember exactly, just at the end of the former Soviet Union as the Berlin Wall was beginning to to crumble and, and Gorbachev's hold on the Communist Party and on Russia was, was weakening. But he was there at the event. It was a big event involving lots of people from around the world. Um, and I was one of the speakers and they sat me at a table right near Gorbachev's table and I saw him and I took the opportunity and went over to him. I said, Mr. Gorbachev, um, tomorrow is Rosh Hashanah, the uh, beginning of the Jewish New Year. And um, I'm in, in Moscow and I'm going to be going to the uh, Coral Synagogue in Moscow, the only really large, in those days, state-sponsored uh, synagogue to welcome uh, the New Year. And as you know, there's been a flurry of anti-Semitism around uh, uh, the Soviet Union, particularly from an organization called Pamyat. And it would really do a great deal of good in stopping anti-Semitism if I were be able to take you with me to the Coral Synagogue, introduce you and have you just make a statement in the synagogue condemning um, anti-Semitism. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, I'm having enough trouble surviving in this uh, atmosphere. You want to rush my demise? If I go to uh, a synagogue with you, uh, it will mark the end of my uh, leadership of the of the Soviet Union. But, he said, I will issue a statement condemning anti-Semitism. And he did a couple of days later, and I'm very proud of my role in getting him uh, to do that. Flash forward some years now, he's no longer the head of the Soviet Union, but he's invited by Israel to participate in the celebration of Israel's 50th uh, anniversary or 60th. I don't remember what it was, um, which one. Um, but um, it was in La Rome Hotel in Jerusalem, and there was a big event uh, involving human rights, and the speakers included me and Natan Sharansky and Vaclav Havel. And who appears in the audience? But Gorbachev, who was speaking at another panel later in the day. So we do our event, and we all get in the elevator. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Dershowitz, Gorbachev, Vaclav Havel, and Sharansky go into an elevator in, in Jerusalem. It happened. And he turned to me. He has a very good sense of humor. And he says, yeah, you're the big shot who claims that you got Sharansky and Vaclav Havel out of prison. I had been their lawyers uh, in both of those cases. And, and, and Vaclav Havel said, but, but he did. He got us out of prison. He's a great lawyer. And, and Gorbachev said, he may be a great lawyer, but he didn't get you out of prison. I got you out of prison. At which point, Sharansky or Vaclav Havel, I don't remember which, turns him and says, if you got us out of prison, why didn't you get us out any sooner? And Gorbachev laughed and said, that much power I didn't have. Gorbachev was a good man, and um, he did a lot of good. And he really helped make the transition uh, from the Soviet Union to Boris Yeltsin's Russia, which looked like it had a chance of moving in the direction of some degree of freedom. Then, of course, came Putin and put an end to all of that. And now Russia is uh, not much different. In fact, considerably worse today than it was under 
the last stages of communism, Gorbachev's communism, certainly not as bad as it was under Stalin's communism. But uh, countries change, leaders change, attitudes change. Uh, look, the president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, uh, said that uh, Republicans who support uh, Trump's philosophy are, are near fascism or semi-fascists. Uh, I don't approve of that kind of a statement or analogy. It reminds me of Hillary Clinton's statement, which lost her the election, calling Republicans a bundle of deplorables, a basket of deplorables. That, that's just not right. Look, there are people with totalitarian uh, attitudes in both parties, on the extremes of both parties, uh, both uh, Democrats, the woke progressive Democrats who don't believe in free speech, who don't believe in due process, who don't believe in toleration, the people who are canceling me because I defended uh, President Trump. These are people with totalitarian mindsets. They don't need dissent. They know it's right. They know what the truth is. They don't need due process. They know who's innocent and who's guilty. If you're you know, a, a man who's been accused by a woman, obviously you're guilty. Obviously the woman's telling the, the, the truth. Um, so, you know, we have totalitarians on both sides of the spectrum. You have uh, Congresswoman Green, who clearly uh, doesn't believe in constitutional law and due process. She said she wanted to impeach uh, President Biden the day he was sworn in. Constitution be damned. It says treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, but that's not good enough for Green. Green says, I want to impeach him on the day he was inaugurated, even though he didn't have a chance to commit any of the constitutional crimes warranting Im impeachment. So, you know, my friend Barney Frank used to always say when they criticized him for voting for a bill that wasn't perfect, he would always say, compared to what? I always say the same thing. Compared to what or compared to who? Gorbachev? Compared to who? Uh, compared, to, compared to Yeltsin? Close case. Compared to Putin? Easy case. He's much better. Compared to Stalin? Easy case. He's much better. I think Gorbachev was probably the best of the Soviet Union leaders that preceded uh, Yeltsin. It really is too bad that the Yeltsin revolution or evolution didn't continue. But uh, that's a subject for a different day. Let's talk about the subject at hand. You know, I don't like it when people are canceled. I'm against cancellation. But what do I think when student loans are canceled? Well, certainly it's a lot more popular among many students. But there are two basic constitutional issues. Number one, does the president have the power to cancel loans and therefore essentially spend half a trillion or some odd dollars without the approval of, of Congress, without the approval of either House of Congress? Let me read to you from the Constitution, and then maybe you can make your judgment. Section 7 of Article 1, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. Now, is this uh, raising revenue bill? No, it's a kind of spending revenue bill, but implicit would seem to be that if you're spending money that's been raised, it ought to be decided by Congress, not by the president. It also says Congress, this is Section 8, shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposed and exercises to pay for the debts and provide for the common defense. But all duties, imposts and exercises shall be uniform through the United States. And Congress also has the right to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Does it have the right to cancel the debt of people who have borrowed 
money. I think the better argument is that if this was to be done, it should be done by Congress. And if Congress did it, it could have been much more nuanced. It's too general. It's too broad. Um, There are so many categories. Uh, Why should people who didn't pay their debt get a break when people who did pay their debt don't get a break? So if I were bringing a lawsuit, and who knows, maybe I will, it would be on behalf of exactly equally situated people who borrowed the same amount of money at the same time, but paid off their debt. And the lawsuit would be to get Congress or the president to give them the equivalent of the amount of money that they're giving to the people who didn't pay their debts, either in tax benefits or direct grants. But I don't see how the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, certainly the way it was defined in Bush versus Gore, um, not to apply only to race, I I don't see how that's satisfied when you have people who are exactly equally situated, except some of them paid off their loans, some of them didn't. And the ones who didn't pay off their loans, the ones who did worse than the ones who did better are the ones that get the benefit. And the ones that did the good thing paying off their loans are the ones who suffer because they've been given no advantage. So, you know, I think it's a it's a hard question. It's a close question. I have another problem with it. Who's going to get the benefit? Um, Some of the people who get the benefit are going to be hedge fund uh, people. They're going to be billionaires. They're going to be multimillionaires. Uh, There is no uh, means test at all. Um, It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Now, maybe it will affect uh, poor people more than rich people, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Certainly, if it was somebody who borrowed a lot of money and then made a lot of money, I don't see why that should be uh, canceled. Also, what about the kids who didn't go to college because they had to borrow the money and they couldn't afford to? Look, if if I didn't have a free college, I could not have gone to college. I was so lucky to live in Brooklyn, New York, which had a school which was every bit as good as Harvard. Um, At that that time, probably considerably better than Yale. A Brooklyn College, part of the New York City college system. Brooklyn College and City College were elite, elite institutions with great teachers. Many of the teachers went on to teach at Harvard, Yale, and and Princeton. And you know how much it cost to go there? Free. It was free. I made money going to college. Why? Because I won a New York State scholarship. It was a competitive exam. And if you won that New York State scholarship, they gave you $1,400. So I made money going to college. Going to college didn't cost me a single penny. I saved that money. I put it in an interest bearing account at 3%. And at the end of my four years, it was, you know, more than $1,400. And I used that to pay my first year's tuition at Yale Law School, which I think was about $1,700. Of course, everything was much cheaper uh, back then. But what about the kids who didn't live in Brooklyn, who didn't live in California, uh, but who lived uh, only in places where college was quite expensive uh, by those standards? Um, and who didn't have the money and whose parents said to them, no, you're not taking a loan. Uh, We have loans. Our house is mortgaged up to the hilt. You can't go to college. You go get a job at McDonald's. And there are many people like that. What benefit do they get? Why should they not get the same benefit that a kid who went to college for a year or two and dropped out and accumulated student loans and didn't pay them off? So Equitable considerations uh, are not particularly favorable to this uh, executive action. And the Constitution raises at least two profound questions, one under the Equal Protection Clause and one under Article 1 and 2, which allocates powers uh, 
both to Congress and to the president. There's nothing in Article II, which allocates powers to the president, that expressly gives him the power to cancel uh, loans. Remember, there's no such thing as free lunch. Every time you save somebody a nickel, somebody it's going to cost somebody else. In this case, it's just generally the taxpayers. So you're going to get poor taxpayers paying for wealthy kids having their debts canceled because they were too lazy or too whatever to not pay them off in a timely fashion. So, you know, part of me, my heart, part of me says, well, you know, debts are being canceled. That's a good thing. But then when I start using my sechel, the Yiddish word for my common sense intelligence, I say my heart shouldn't dominate here. It seems to me that the uh, arguments on the merits just don't favor uh, the Biden uh, proposals. They probably do favor some proposal, but it should have been a proposal enacted after extensive legislative hearings in which you had, you know, university officials and um, economic experts coming in and, and testifying, in which you might have had some kids coming in and testifying uh, who borrowed money, uh, some people who couldn't pay it back, some people who could pay it back, and then let Congress make the decision. Uh, Congress is elected to make these kinds of decisions. The president's supposed to administer the laws, not make the laws. Uh, just the way courts shouldn't make the laws. Look, this is an old problem. This didn't start with the Biden administration or the Trump administration. Every presidential administration virtually has tried to accumulate more and more power. Just remember the election campaign of 1800 in which Jefferson was elected to be the third president of the United States. He ran on the platform of reducing presidential power. He didn't like the fact that Adams had expanded presidential power. He said, basically, that the power lies with the legislature, not with the president. What's the first thing he does? He buys Louisiana. Does he even ask Congress? No, I'll buy Louisiana. That's you know, pretty expensive, buying Louisiana. It was a good deal. Let me tell you that. It was a good deal. He got a great, great price uh, that he paid for it. But uh, this is Jefferson, the president, who says, no, no, let's not have presidential power. Uh, who exercises presidential power almost immediately. Andrew Jackson expanded the power of the, of the presidency. Abraham Lincoln obviously did it, the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the greatest documents in American history. I have a copy of it hanging on, on, on my wall. I actually have hanging on my wall. People have asked me about this wall. It's kind of my collection. I actually have, Martha's Vineyard has had a newspaper, the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, for probably 200 years and I have a copy of the newspaper, which printed the first printing in Martha's Vineyard of the Emancipation Proclamation. I have that hanging on my wall. That wasn't done by Congress. That was done by the president of the United States. So presidents have seized power. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, on the other hand, when Pearl Harbor was invaded, uh, he immediately told our troops to fire back, and, but he called for Congress, convened Congress, and, and, and ask Congress to declare war on Japan and Germany, which they did the last time we've declared war. Since that time, every president has just taken it upon himself. It's not war. What do you mean? Just because we have soldiers and tanks and, and an air force 
and, and bombs? No, it's not war. It's a police action. And the Constitution doesn't say you need to have congressional approval for a police action. So we'll go to Korea. We'll go to Vietnam. We'll go to Iran. Who knows? Maybe we'll go to uh, Iraq, I meant. But who knows? Maybe we'll go to Iran. That was a purely Freudian, Freudian slip. Related to that, uh, President Biden is about to sign an executive act restoring us to the deal with Iran. Now, what's the deal with Iran? The deal with Iran is a multinational agreement involving the payment of money, involving the exactation of promises. It's a treaty. It looks like a treaty. It smells like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. It quacks like a treaty. And what does the Constitution say about treaties? They have to be confirmed by two-thirds of the Senate, but two-thirds of the Senate will not approve reentering the deal with Iran. So the president has said, looks like it, looks like it, smells like it, but it's not. It's a deal as if a deal can't be a treaty. You can make a deal about a treaty and you can create a deal and then implement that deal by having various signatories sign a treaty. Do you think George Washington would have allowed a president to sign an agreement like that with Iran without congressional approval? Of course not. In his second inaugural, he talked extensively about not having entanglements with with foreign uh, uh, countries. And that's why the Constitution made it difficult to have treaties. They didn't make it easy. They didn't give that power to the President of the United States. They gave it to the President of the United States only with the approval, not of a majority, but of a super majority of Congress. So I may be involved in another lawsuit. I'm going to be really busy as I turn 84. Is it tomorrow? The day after tomorrow, I turn 84. Um, and I'm going to, if the good Lord gives me the power and the strength, I'm going to remain pretty busy because I will be consulting on a lawsuit involving the treaty uh, with Iran. I will be consulting on a lawsuit involving the um, uh, student debt. Uh, and I'll probably be consulting on a bunch of other lawsuits. Um, you know, the attempt to cancel me has worked only among people who weren't truly friends or truly liberal or truly civil libertarians, but I refuse to be canceled and I will fight back and I will continue to do what I think is right as a constitutional lawyer and a criminal lawyer. And uh, my critics be damned. Um, they don't understand me. They've never understood me. Uh, those who praised me when I defended their friends uh, praised me for the wrong reasons because they thought I was defending their friends. I wasn't. I was defending the Constitution. And those who don't like me, uh, don't like me for the right reason. I'm not supporting or opposing people on political or partisan grounds. For me, it's the Constitution. That comes first. This is my copy of the Constitution with an introduction by me. I read it all the time. I know it very, very well. I went back during the impeachment uh, trial and I read every single word of the Constitutional Convention, not only the Federal Constitutional Convention, but many of the state constitutional conventions as well. So I know of which I speak, of what I speak. And I know what the Constitution says and doesn't say. I have a wonderful cartoon. I think I may have told you this. It's posted downstairs 
uh, under a picture of Abraham Lincoln. And it has the famous framers standing around writing the Constitution and say, hey, just to be funny, why don't we make what's unconstitutional a little wishy-washy? And that's, of course, what they did, not for that reason, but uh, equal protection, due process, uh, the right to be secure in one's homes, persons. These are terms that are subject, obviously, to uh, interpretation. And uh, they should be interpreted consistent with the intent of the framers, but also bearing in mind that we don't live in the horse and buggy age. Uh, one of my favorite cases is Justice Scalia's opinion when somebody put um, uh, one of these machines uh, secreted it under the car, a global satellite imaging, whatever it was, machine that could track the car wherever it went. And the question was without a warrant. The question was whether or not that was a search. And um, um, Justice Scalia said, well, the framers of the Constitution, if they knew about this high tech thing, would have thought it was a search. And I forget, one of the other justices said, well, you know, there's an analogy uh, there. I, I think it was uh, Justice Alito. He said, can't you imagine the framers thinking about a little tiny man who was hiding in the back of a horse and buggy carriage and taking careful notes about where the horse and buggy carriage went? Would that have been permitted under the Fourth Amendment? Uh, you know, that, those debates are how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. But there are serious debates as to what the Constitution means, how it should be interpreted. And, you know, for 50 years, I taught about that. And for 50 years, I taught about it in a neutral way. And for 50 years, most of my colleagues at Harvard and at Yale and at other places did not teach about it in a neutral way. They taught about the Constitution as they wish it were written, not as it was written. And I refuse to play that game. For me, the Constitution uh, is the law of the land. And uh, there are parts of it that are dead. Uh, you can't do anything with them. You have to be 35, not 34 to be president. And there are parts of it that are living, due process, equal protection. Look, the framers of the 14th Amendment would never have voted for the 14th Amendment if they knew that it involved integrating the schools or allowing interracial marriage. They never would have voted for it. But they put in the terms equal protection of the law and due process and all these other terms that are really important. And they gave it to the courts to interpret those terms because they knew those terms are not self-interpreting. So, you know, the Constitution is an interesting document. It's, it's in many ways, it's a lot like the Bible. You know, the devil can quote scripture. And the Bible stories is, are so wonderful. I mean, my bar mitzvah, which is when I was 13 years old, and I read from the Torah, and uh, my portion was Shoftim, the book of judges and lawyers. And, and there's a famous sentence in it, Sedek, Sedek, Tirdof, justice, Justice must you run after. Tirdof means chase after, and Sedek means justice. It's the same root as charity, tzedakah, or tzaddik, a very smart and good man. So you should seek justice, justice. And the commentators ask, why is justice mentioned twice? And 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 of course, there are so many answers to that question. I recently came up with a, a new answer. I'm representing now a family whose child was killed in a war and the enemy won't return the body. And um, my interpretation for that case, Sedek, Sedek, why do we mention it twice? Because there's justice for the living and there's justice for the dead. There's justice for the dead. There's justice for an obvious need of the parents to bury a child. 
there are so many interpretations. Tzedek, tzedek can mean procedural justice versus substantive justice. Better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. Remember the story of Abraham where he persuades God not to kill all the people of Saddam if there are 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people. But there aren't that many righteous people. So God does destroy the city of Saddam. Uh, the Bible is so subject to interpretation. Catholics read it differently from Protestants. Even the Ten Commandments are read differently by Jews, Catholics, Protestants. So uh, don't expect the Constitution to have a, a clear meaning from God. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful story in the Talmud about a group of rabbis arguing about a particular arcane um, Talmudic rule about an oven that could be used or couldn't be used. And one of the rabbis says, well, this is an interesting argument, but I'm telling you I'm right. And if I'm right, let the wall shake. And the wall shake? <laughs> the rabbi says, I must be right. The rabbi said, we don't believe in wall shaking. The rabbi said, if I'm right, let the river outside change its course. The river changes its course. The rabbi says, I'm right. And the people say, we don't believe in rivers. Finally, the rabbi says, if I'm right, let God come down and tell me that I'm right. Sure enough. A voice from heaven comes down and says to the rabbis, why do you quarrel with Rabbi Eliezer? He is surely correct in his interpretation of my Torah. To which all the rabbis say, God, you gave us a Torah. You gave us a means for interpreting it. Now, with all due respect, mind your own business. Go back to heaven. We're going to do the interpretation. We're not interested in your interpretation we, the rabbis, have the right to interpret the Bible. I mean, that tells the story of our Constitution. Do we really want the framers to go back to constitutional heaven? Or do we want them to tell us, the dead hand of the law, to tell us what the appropriate interpretation is? I leave that to you. Okay, let's turn to a few uh, letters. I listened to this podcast and I can't help but come to the conclusion that Dershowitz is just not aware of how criminal the defendants have become and he gives them too much benefit of the doubt. He's also under the misguided notion that the majority of judges appointed by Democrats are fair and unbiased and likewise would be fair to Donald Trump. I respectfully disagree and I think Dershowitz is being naive here. No, I don't think so. I think that um, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are not criminals. They're decent people. I know many of them. You know many of them. They make mistakes but they're decent people trying to do the right thing. And then we get people who agree with me on that from a Harvard graduate who has never voted Democrat. I have the utmost respect for your intellectual honesty. Thank you for your analysis. And then Alan, I like your analysis as I often find their balance, objective, clear, concise, um, detailed explanations. One can follow your logical path and your conclusions. Thanks as always. I enjoy tuning in for another of your informative discussions uh, with, with Alan. And then this one is really, you know, I'm getting a lot of praise these days because I'm reading YouTube rather than Rumble. Um, I have a wall of heroes in my home. Thomas Jefferson, John Locke, Frederick Douglass, Thomas Sewell, Abraham Lincoln. And he's thinking of putting up, oh, she, he or she is putting up my picture. Thank you. I, I'm in good company. I would appreciate that very much. Uh, I have to hold my nose when you digress to fondle your political leanings. But with that said... If I were facing a firing squad, I would trust you with my defense without hesitation, respectfully. Okay. And then the final question, which I made an allusion to before. If anyone else is insanely curious 
as to all the pictures on the wall ceiling behind him, I would kill to see what some of them, what some of them are. Um, I love my wife and we agree about 89% of things. Carolyn, what do you think? What percentage? 89%. Yeah, that's a fair percentage. What we don't disagree about is what the function of walls is. Carolyn has this strange notion that the function of walls are to hold up a house. No, the function of walls is to hang pictures. Um, and I use every inch of everywhere I live to hang my prized uh, possessions. And so uh, in New York, I have certain possessions that I like. I have a lot of constitutional documents. I have a lot of uh, early American documents. And I just love to pass by the hallway and and see an early copy of the Declaration of Independence or a Lincoln pardon. Or And I on one of my podcasts, I did go through uh, New York and, 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 and show you some of my, my, my treasures. They're not valuable. They're not expensive, but they mean something to me. And they're very important here on Martha's Vineyard. That's kind of my biography. This is a sloping ceiling. So it was very hard to just put pictures up, but we got uh, a guy to come and hang up a lot of the pictures of, of my life, my cases, um, photographs of me with interesting uh, people. Uh, and, and so uh, the entire uh, attic, this is an attic, basically, it used to be just a storage room, but uh, my wonderful wife um, uh, really redid our house and, and turned this into a great office for me. I think she had a personal reason to get me out of the kitchen, but, uh, and, and, and I still do too much work in the kitchen, but I do a lot of my work up here. And, um, and I love to be surrounded by by my pictures. I have lots of pictures of uh, events. I have lots of um, obviously some honorific things like honorary degrees. I got 15 of them before I defended President Trump. Guess how many I've gotten since? Zero. And I will never get another honorary degree since I defended Trump. Uh, I probably never get another honor of any kind. And, you know, I was at an age when I defended Trump. I was, uh, you know, 80 something years old, a time in one's life to sit back and relax and be honored for your life work. <laughs> that didn't happen. That wasn't in the script. The script uh, turned out to be very different. I've been spending the last few years of my life just defending myself, defending my reputation, defending the Constitution, um, fighting with people and um, trying to make the best of it. But uh, that's who I am. And that's who I've always be, been. And that's who I'll always be. So. Uh, retirement is not in my nature, but I can remember the past. And that's what I do with this wall. So maybe someday I'll be able to have a camera to walk through and show you uh, in detail some of the things that uh, uh, I, I, I treasure. But uh, I do treasure these things. And uh, my wife and I have never reached the compromise. I get some walls and they're filled with pictures and she gets some other walls that have one picture. It drives me nuts to have so much white around the one picture. But uh, she is the right to have a wall or two uh, that's dedicated to her love of white walls and not to my love of multicolored framed walls filled with pictures. So see you tomorrow.